Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this audio sermon. You can find a full archive of sermons on our website, holycommunion.net. This sermon was preached by the Reverend Beth Scriven on Sunday, November 15th, 2020, the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. Get to know what God is really like. I've said it before, more than once here at Holy Communion and probably every other month at Rockwell House. Get familiar with the voice of God. Get to know what God looks like and sounds like and smells like and tastes like and feels like, but mostly get to know what God's voice sounds like through the big picture of Scripture so that you can tell it apart from all the other voices. Get to know what God is really like. Because what we think God is like often determines more about us than we think. How we act, how we love, how we fear, all often have roots in what we think God is like. It informs how we think God wants us to live, and how we think God will receive us when we die. Good theology is life-giving for us and for the people around us. Bad theology hurts people. The parable in today's gospel reading is a great case in point. Parables in general are uncertain, unsettling creatures, even the easier ones, and today's is not one of the easier ones. Unlike allegories or fables, which have clear parallels and tidy answers to offer, parables are designed to set us on our ear, to get us thinking, to challenge our comfortable assumptions about who belongs where and why and how. Parables should keep us guessing and poking and prodding, especially when we start to think we know what they mean or when someone else tells us they are sure that the meaning is plain. And extra especially, when the plain reading someone wants to hand us rings out of tune with the voice we've come to recognize as God's. The plain reading of this parable, as most of us have received it, is that the master is God, we are the servants, We should devote everything we have to keeping the master's anger at bay, lest we be cast out into the eternal weeping and teeth grinding. Frankly, this reading of the text makes God out to be kind of a monster. There's not a lot here to recommend a God that behaves like this master, nor to make us long for a heavenly kingdom that operates by these principles. But here's some good news. There is also surprisingly little here to recommend this interpretation of the parable. This interpretation of the parable hangs by a remarkably thin pair of threads. The first of which is that the opening sentence of this parable is the right one. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip we just heard. Seems simple enough, no? The problem is the original text just says, for it is like a man who was leaving. 
And it's been long enough since Jesus started talking here in this passage, a couple of chapters long, that it's altogether unclear just what Jesus means by the word it. It might be the kingdom of heaven. The previous parable began, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids. So it might in fact be that Matthew means us to understand that it's the kingdom of heaven that is like this man or this story. But it also might be the uncertainty of knowing neither the day nor the hour when Jesus will return, since this is the fourth or fifth story in a row, since Jesus' friends asked him, tell us about the end of the age. When will it be and what will be the sign of your coming? And the last sentence before this one was, keep awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Or it might not be referring back to any specific antecedent. Because it's like this might be a rhetorical turn, an introduction to describing the current age, the world we already have, rather than the kingdom of heaven. It's possible that this story describes rather than forecasts as a setup to the final story in this set where Jesus sets out the terms of judgment for those who do or don't serve the least of these his siblings. The translators of the Common English Bible and of many translations chose the kingdom of heaven. It is the version most of us have been taught, paired with the interpretation that if we don't give everything we have to maximize results for God, usually a specific kind of results that were being handed in that interpretation, God will throw us out into a hopeless place and we'll never get back. But the text doesn't actually say so, which is deeply unfortunate that the text would be this clear, this unclear, when the meaning of the story seems to change so dramatically depending on what Jesus meant by it. So what do we do with such an unclear text where so much hangs on a single mysterious pronoun? And if it does mean the kingdom of heaven, what then? Is God really like this master, which is the second thread on which the traditional interpretation depends? Is God also hard and harsh, harvesting what wasn't his to harvest and gathering what wasn't his to gather? If not, where is God to be found in this story? And where should we be? Jesus never lays out for the disciples who parallels what in this story. Sometimes he tells them what what a parable means or represents, more like an allegory. But here, all that's left up to the listener. So how can we tell? We listen for the voice we recognize. We look to the rest of scripture, as well as to the rest of our tradition and experience, but especially to the rest of scripture. We look for what God is like elsewhere in the story. We look forward just a few verses and we see that God specifically and clearly wants the hungry fed, the prisoner visited, the stranger welcomed. We look in Jeremiah and the Psalms and we hear God say, before you were born, I knew you and loved you. 
We look at the story of Noah and we see God place a bow in the clouds facing upwards, away from the earth, so that God will never again destroy all people. We look at 1 John and hear that God is love. We look back a few weeks in Matthew's telling and we are reminded that Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We look at Luke and we see that Mary experienced God growing in her womb as a blessing and Elizabeth's child leapt for joy at his presence. We remember that when Jesus stood up in the temple to announce the beginning of his own ministry, he opened the scroll to Isaiah and read, God's spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These passages are unambiguous about where God stands and what God is like. These other passages show us that, yes, sometimes God gets angry with us. That is in the big story of Scripture, too. But that anger is tempered and passes away, while God's love does not. God's care for the poor and the oppressed does not. So as we return to this tricky story, that comes with us. Knowing God to be a God of love with a heart for the poor first and foremost means that even before we get anywhere near the scary ending about being thrown outside to weep, it simply makes no sense to identify God as the man going on the trip here. That possibility has been ruled out by the overarching character of this God encountered elsewhere in the text. It doesn't resolve the puzzle entirely. It still leaves open the possibility that this parable describes the world as we now encounter it, where the rich get richer and the poor get yelled at. We're refusing to participate in a system of fleecing people to make money at all costs can get you thrown out of a job or a community. And it also still leaves open the possibility that this parable shows us something about the kingdom of heaven after all. But if we walk into the story hand in hand with a God of love, then the only place left for God in this story is as the third slave. Then God is not the harsh master, but the person who would rather be cast into the outer darkness than participate in abusive systems and structures. In either of those cases, This now is a God I recognize. The parable isn't settled for us still. That's probably as it should be. It will keep poking at us and we can keep poking at it for a lifetime's worth and more. But what I said to you before, I now repeat with gusto. Get to know what God is really like. Get to know the voice of God. Seek it out across the wide reach of the story of Scripture. Bring back your questions and your answers. Trade them with one another. Let yourself be changed in that trading. Come back to it again and again and again. Get to know what God is really like so that as stories like this poke and prod at you, 
you can poke and prod back at them until you find the place where you recognize God. Amen.